0: Jordan, Jordan Weeks. Weeks. Let's go in. <sighs> Height Zone World. My guest this week is Jordan Weeks. He plays in the bands South Sea Sneak, AARM, AA Thin Sketch, and OC fief and also as Vox Robotica. He also played drums for Height with Friends on a previous tour and he produced a part of my album Height with Friends versus the Continental MCs. I did an episode with Lord Grunge, who is Jordan's younger brother, a while back. And Grunge talked very eloquently about what kind of influence Jordan was on him, um not just as a musician but also just a, a passionate as a passionate fan of music and i think it that definitely comes across in this interview um, the art as always is by my man mike riley go to mike rileycomics.com check him out we're being hosted once again by splice today peep them at splicetoday.com let's,
1: let's go, go. Let's go.
2: This is how I remember it. I saw something on Sesame Street
3: where these guys were, were breaking.
2: I mean, I don't know what the hell it was. I don't know what's called, breaking or whatever, right. or anything. They were all wearing the same red T-shirt. And it was like, I thought it was like old kids. Like, I thought they were in their 20s. But I recently saw this footage, and these kids that are instructing the other kids are like 16 or 15. Right. right. And the younger kids are like 9. And it's, you know, a handful of them, and they're on a boardwalk, which I'm going to guess was either maybe like Atlantic City or it might have been like Coney Island. Yeah. I'm still not, I was, still wasn't even watching the footage recently. I still wasn't clear what it was, but I saw that footage of these kids breaking, doing this insane dance shit. But it wasn't even like dance, it, and it wasn't gymnastics. It wasn't like a thing like, oh, that's amazing gymnastics. It was just like, what the hell are these kids doing? Yeah, That's like weird. And I'm to- I was totally just transfixed by it. And then when they're like, "Okay, you kind of got the basic moves now," like, "Let's let's do this," sucker MCs drops,
1: mm.
2: and I was just like, "I'm thinking about it now. I'm getting chills. My hair is standing up in the back of my neck." Yeah, that's what happened. That was maybe the first time I remember that happening. It was like the dancing and the music was like perfect for each other, and it was it wasn't like watching somebody disco dance, which was a bunch of crap. Right. Like I mean, there's a, there's a bit of an intersection between disco and hip hop, which I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I'm not gonna uh, dis respect, but like a lot of that stuff was just like you can do that to any song; it doesn't matter as long as right. the BPMs are right. It's like it doesn't matter, but this was like like and and this is true too. You you could break to all kinds of different shit. Yeah, but it was like that song was like almost feel, felt like it was making these kids move in this way right, right. I, like specifically and i was just like i've never seen anything like this before and that was it i was just like i need to investigate this yeah and again i'm in rural massachusetts and i have no real avenue to go find out any right. this information beyond like mass media and there weren't that many rap records out then yeah. that you could go to, like in uh, Massachusetts there was a, 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 I think it was maybe New England wide, Strawberries was the record store. So we would go to Strawberries at like the Lemister Mall or um, I think they had an, a, a store in Framingham as well, Framingham or Natick area and then every time I went to Strawberries I, would, I didn't know what to look for, I, like I knew pretty soon after I started paying attention to media and trying to find out what was going on, I was like, oh this is hip hop or rap Right. So I would start to go look for rap and hip-hop things. And I didn't find a lot of them in Massachusetts. But we had, my parents, both my parents' families grew up in Newburgh, New York. I mean, they grew up in Newburgh, New York. Their parents are from Newburgh, yeah. New York. And there's a town of Newburgh and there's a city of Newburgh. So we would go from the town of Newburgh to see my dad's parents. Then we would go to the city of Newburgh and see my, my mom's parents. And all our relatives lived there. And near the town of Newburgh was the Newburgh Mall. And they had a record store. And Newburgh is about an hour and 10, hour and 20 minutes north of Manhattan. Yeah. But I guess it was like close enough that they got some of these records. Right, right. So I would go into that record store, which I cannot remember the name of, and just like they had a hip hop section. I was like, oh, shit. So that was where I first started learning. Like, that's where I found the uh, Renegades of Funk single, Mm. which I don't know if you've seen it. It's like the, the, uh, The Marvel Comics style. Oh, man. And I knew who Bambada was because I had started reading. You could buy, the crazy thing is by that time you could buy books. A couple books were out about hip hop and like how to get into hip hop and explaining what it was. Right. And one of them was this book called Hip Hop by Stephen Hager. Who I didn't know, you know, until later. He's the guy that wrote the original draft of Beat Street. Okay. But he wrote this book called Hip Hop. And that was a huge help to me. In this fifth grade mm. quest for information and I remember it had like um, uh, Grandmaster Kaz it just had like a, a like a facsimile of his notebook and it just was like rhymes oh yeah and I was just like oh. and it was like everything about that it's like his handwriting looked like like really cool graffiti right, right and I was all I was already since I used to draw all the time I had this sort of like interest in visual stuff as well. So I was like, really, when I found out there's like this, this visual art component to this, this thing that was happening. um, I don't think people started calling it a movement for like another 10 years or something, but like, it was like, Oh, like there's dancing that kids do to this. And then it's people doing the music. And then I'd find out later that they were all pretty much kids too. Like the fucking furious five were like 20 years old when they started doing (laughs) this shit. I mean, I think they were like 15 or 16 when they started doing it. And by the time they were recording, they were like 20. Even yeah. though they look like these 35-year-old these like men, year old yeah. men with, with all their gear on. But uh, and it's like, in the, these, and there are kids that are watching this stuff. So also around that time, sometime in 1984, um, I saw, I was watching PBS. And I used to watch like Nature and, or Nova and all this stuff on PBS. And I'm watching something on PBS. And Monty Python was on. And this thing came on. I turned, must have turned it on to watch some, some stupid thing and it was like these guys doing the same thing they were doing on Sesame Street and I was like wait what is this and it was Style Wars oh shit, and it was like about 10 or 15 minutes into Style Wars so I like we happened to have a VCR at that point so I threw in a tape and I recorded like maybe an hour and a half of Wild Style or Style Wars yeah, and I just watched that and rewatched that and rewatched that for years <laughs> And that and the the Stephen Hager book were my two main connections yeah. of information to that stuff. And then going to the record store in Newburgh was the other thing. Yeah. And I would each time we were there, I'd maybe I try to get another record or two. The first hip hop record I got though was that Jared Jared got for me for my Christmas or my birthday. And again, it was it, I was late fifth grade, I think, and he got me the uh, the first Run DMC record. Mm. And to this day, that's like top five favorite things of all time. Never mind yeah. records, but like that just blew my mind open. So I was always looking for Run DMC stuff. By fifth grade, I was just looking for Run DMC stuff, Fat Boys, anything Curtis Blow, um, Africa Bambaataa. And then by sixth grade, it was just full blown. I was I was not doing well in math. No. I was I had forsaken math. Not that I'm that good in math anyway, so it was, that was very easy. I was like, yeah. I, you know, Long Division came in, and I was like, this is not where it's at. <laughs> right. I'm going to go listen to Renegades a Funk for 100, yeah. 100 spins and uh, figure out what that's about. So that was when it all, sixth grade was really when it was just all, this is what it's about. And I had already I had started playing drums in fifth grade. By sixth grade, I bought this used kit, Yeah, and it was just on. And at the same time i was kind of getting into rock stuff also like i was getting i finally found out who van halen was Mm. and they quickly became one of my favorite bands so i had this sort of parallel thing going on with being into rock and but also being into um hip-hop and nobody else in bolton massachusetts gave two flying shits about hip-hop right and i'm i'm not exaggerating it was like metal or pop or just you were just a bonehead right. and i was the bonehead right. i was the out to lunch kid who was like i would try to talk to my friends about it and a couple of my friends would like kind of be curious and i don't know if they were just placating me like oh yeah let's go break dance <laughs> you know? and, and i'd get the cardboard out in the basement and i was never like the greatest break dancer but i spent i put a lot of time in on it yeah and uh I loved it. I like just the feeling of doing, trying to do this shit. You know, I was more of, a, more of an up rocker slash um, electric boogaloo style. Yeah. Um, I was more... I, I did better with the robot kind of stuff and those yeah. kinds of things. And I liked up rocking stuff a lot. I never got that great on the floor. Mm. And I was realizing, like, I, my real interest is the music. So I'm not yeah. going to, like, go balls out on this right, floor right. stuff and trying to... I tried to do windmills for like two years and I just was like, I'm not doing a windmill. Yeah. I don't think my, 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 uh, <laughs> my body weight distribution was like such. I wasn't like a wiry little kid that could just whip around on the floor. Right, right. I had to really work that shit. And I still have like fat knuckles from that time because I jammed a couple of knuckles mm. doing that shit. And I was like, I'm not like, I'll jam my fingers playing drums. Yeah. Because yeah. I love that shit. The dancing is fun, but I don't, did not love it the way. Right, I love right. playing drums or DJing and stuff. So, But th- that was... A, it was a, I felt really like, man, am I, am I doing something wrong here? Like Liking this shit? Mm. You know, I mean, you'd have these thoughts when you're like 10 or 11 because it's very like... It's very... Um, it's a developmental period where you're trying to sort of like make or maintain friendships right. and you're kind of working out how to socialize with people and stuff. And it was like... Uh, there were metal heads that would hang out and just talk about metal and then pretty soon they started smoking and hanging out and talking about metal and I would try to talk about the stuff with the hip hop stuff with people nobody wanted to give it I had like three friends that would break dance with me at my house Well, I'd be listening to Rocket or something yeah and uh, that was another one the Herbie Hancock thing I think I wound up getting in fifth grade Mm. or, or sixth grade and that was huge I listened to that all the time yeah and we would always break to either rocket or auto drive and uh and they these friends of mine seemed kind of like okay like we'll listen to this stuff but it was ne- they never really they never suggested any of it, so i knew they weren't really into it yeah and then like by seventh grade that was all gone like any any semblance of those people having any interest in, they were just like no we're skating now we're skating. So, right, we're riding right, right. bmx's miami vice it hit everything was about pastel suits and t-shirts and shit and jams <laughs> and it's like if you didn't have fucking floral jams or a, flor- or a floral jams shirt jams were shorts Yeah, I mean jams was, were like a it was like OP like people were rocking this Ocean Pacific stuff Right. and this is again, this is in Massachusetts so this shit had probably been going on for 10 years in California mm. and it finally hit here in, or, or in Massachusetts and <laughs> so by then everybody was like and all these posers that, like, had a windbreaker in sixth grade. Like, no, 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 no now they're posers that have a fucking floral shirt. Yeah. And they're in the jams to go with them. The jam shorts and floral shorts. Everything was about floral shit. It was insane. And I just thought that was, like, so whack. Mm-hmm. I did have a, one pair of jams and one floral shirt. I had the jams as so. well. You had to have the yeah. jams. Then that was another thing. I decided, like, I can give up the ghost a little bit and, and be down with, with different things. Yeah. I didn't have a whole bunch of jams. <laughs> right. Like, if I was going to hang out at a mall or something, maybe i put on the jams. <laughs> but if I was going to just hang out around the house, I'm wearing probably, like, like a kung fu jacket. Right. You know, like, like, a, like the top of a, a kung fu gi. I'm not sure what the proper term is. Like UTFO. Or something. Yeah, like some yeah. UTFO shit. Yeah. Exactly. And that was my model. That was, like... <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, like... Um, but, like those, no, like those guys, that was, it was, like, windbreaker pants... And, and Shelto Adidas are wearing Pumas and then like a, a uh, <laughs> Kung Fu Gi top. And I had also started rocking this. Uh, that was another thing it was the fashion. I was very fascinated with the fashion of this mm. stuff. And, uh, and I also was wearing this black fedora that I got as a birthday present. Both because I was so down with Run DMC. Yeah and because I love the Blues Brothers so Mm. I thought it like represented both things so that's what I would like go out sometimes as but I was too old for it to be cute (laughs) right? and too young for it to look like I was a man representing something you know (laughs) I just look like I must look like a flaming asshole (laughs) and I remember distinctly one time being and I also want to contextualize this like I'm super pale white kid uh kind of like slightly fat and had giant fucking glasses and braces and i probably wasn't smiling all that much because i knew i had braces and it's like when you have braces like you're not really smiling when you're 11 Mm. because everything just is shitty (laughs) but i had these giant glasses and i never think of myself as having glasses but when i look at pictures of myself then they i mean they made dmc's Casals look like spectacles like tiny spectacles Mm. And these fucking giant glasses going. And I remember one time I'm being at the mall. This was a cultural awakening point for me. Being, I was at the Lannister Mall in Lannister, Massachusetts, and I was walking to meet Jared and my mom somewhere. And I had that outfit on. I had like either it was either windbreaker pants or jeans, or I I had white I had a pair of white Lees. Could have been white Lees, and the fucking kung fu jacket
3: and my black fedora
2: and I had a pair of Pumas and I had a pair of Adidas and it was probably the Pumas at that time and I'm just walking to meet my my mom and my brother at a store and I again I think I'm like 12 or 11 and I was sort of tall so I think people thought I was like 16 or 17 Mm. being a fucking wise ass yeah like being an asshole and I was really just 11 or 12 in love with this culture and shit that I really wanted to just experience and these two older black, older, older than me, these two black dudes walk by and just look at me and they keep, just keep walking and they go fucking honky. <laughs> and I was like, what did I do? Like I had no idea yeah, yeah. that I was making some kind of a front, you know, or a statement. Right, and right. I, was, I was just like, I think that was the last time the Kung Fu jacket went outside. You know, <laughs> no, seriously. I, it was just like, like. Yeah, I was trying different stuff out. Right. And I, I remember there was even, there was a point in sixth grade when I tried, you know, after watching um, uh, Style Wars so many times, and then, then I'd seen Beat Street and all this stuff, I tried for like a week, gave this a try, walking with like a very mild, like what I learned later would be called a gangster lean. Mm. (laughs) and i mean i had no idea what context was for it but i just tried walking a little bit more like relaxed and the way i was seeing people walking in these movies and i tried that for like a week and like nobody even gave me shit about it this is just around school and i was like that is not working like that is not cool it's not cool it's not natural and I, was like, that, and I was like, that's kind of like this fucking kung fu jacket. Right. Like, right. It, this is stopping now. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, it was a weird thing because it was like, it was, that was an interesting point because I was like, I fucking just loved all this stuff, but nobody had ever, I'd never had a conflict about it before. Right. And here was this direct thing that had nothing specifically to do with hip hop, but it was like these dudes, in a way, were like calling me out yeah and I was just like damn <laughs> it kind of hurt it didn't like I wasn't like sad about it but I just was like damn, like I got called out like this is not the way to rock this stuff and <laughs> so I like learned a lesson so I had like one windbreaker I rocked a windbreaker with jeans that felt okay mm. and uh, you know it was, I, I forgot I probably had two little fake gold necklaces Mm. Which was another <laughs> other thing. So now that I think about it, it was I, like I said, I was a flaming asshole <laughs> right. and should have been called out on that stuff, and it's like it was all, you know, like I don't want to promote bullying in any way, but right. there is some benefit to friction happening. Yeah, in, a, in, in your young years. You, it kind of helps you realize like what's important to you, and, mm. or it can. Yeah. And that was like. This kung fu jacket is not important to me in public. (laughs) I'm going to leave that at home, and uh, I'll just, like, do my own shit. And from then on, it was just, like... From then, I also kind of didn't care if someone was going to call me out for what I was wearing. But I adopted a much more sort of mild dress thing.
0: Like, as you're playing drums, like, what are you...
2: What are you, like, thinking of doing? Like, being, like, this rock drummer? I think I really wanted to combine drumming with the hip-hop. Hmm. But it was tough to do it yeah and i remember ta- i remember in the school band in sixth or seventh grade taking a big bass drum and turning it over and playing the breakdown part in um uh looking for the perfect
1: beat
2: don't 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 do i remember playing that because it was after school and like we could go in there and practice so i went in and i just played that for like an hour and I just remember like I, I want to do something like this but like I didn't have a context for it and didn't really know how to do it Yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to kind of merge those things and it's tough mm. but it's like and they're different things it's like a different thing like listening to the sound of a drum machine or a sampled beat and listening to a sound of like a well recorded acoustic drum kit Yeah, they're, they're two different things and I kind of like them being separate but there's way there's I'm I'm still like I'm still thinking like there's a good way to merge these things and some people mm. have done that well yeah. and, um, but I'm I'm extreme, super critical of people of the Sonics people
1: use or yeah. don't,
2: don't use when they're doing those things but yeah I think I think I was like I'd like to get into a band and uh, and, and play shows and things yeah. and I, and record and that was the kind of I think that was my thinking and
3: when did you do that for the first time? Seventh grade was my first
2: band. We were called the Jaywalkers, and uh, there were three of us initially. It was me, Jeff Clowder, and Jamie Harmon. And so I could I could drum by that point. I mean, I could play a drum kit. I could play the different parts of the kit and everything. And uh, and Jeff was kind of singing, and Jamie was like learning guitar. So we kind of just played around in our basement, and then we made a, a recording of uh, with a little help from my friends. Mm. And it was so awful. But we took it to a school dance, and whoever was DJing was like, oh, yeah, I'll play that. Oh, shit. And yeah. No, it, no, and it's yeah. like, Jamie, I don't know, been playing guitar for like three months or something. Yeah. <laughs> and we didn't really get through the song. <laughs> right. It was like real stumbly. And I think they played it for about 10 seconds and then realized what it was and took it out and we're like, no. Mm. Unless Jeff or Jamie went up to them and was like, you know what, take that out. I don't know. That could have happened. Yeah. But I just remembered I stopped hearing the song. Because, you know, seventh grade, you... Can we, kind, we talked to girls, we were some kind of friends with girls, but it was like, we need to like this is how we're going to get girlfriends.
1: Mm.
2: You know And it, that it's important to say that was not a driving force for the general drive to do music or to play instruments and stuff, but it was really like, well, that's supposed to happen.
0: Right.
2: Like we're, like if you, if you play an instrument, like I, I wasn't like, "Oh, I want to get a girlfriend. How can I do that? Oh, I'm going to play drums." Right It was like... I love this shit. I'm gonna drum. I'm gonna be a drummer, and then it's like, oh yeah. Like secondarily, it's like, yeah. oh yeah. These ladies are supposed to really like musicians,
0: right? Right.
2: And and it, in sixth grade, I did a drum solo in the school band concert. I was like the only kid that like played drum kit, so I did this really <laughs> clunky drum solo. And afterward, um, this eighth grade, like the most popular hottest 8th grade girl in our junior high was six, seven, eight. Um,
1: I'm trying to think of her name now um, Lara Doucette that like, came up to me and I,
2: I'm sure this didn't mean a single thing to her but she came up to me like after like the next day at school I was like that was a really great drum solo yeah. and I was like <laughs> I was like 8th grade Eighth grade fox in like pink pants and the floral sweatshirt with like some kind of bandana shit in her hair, like I'm in. Like this is this right. is great. And in a way that sort of happened, I wound up getting this you know kind of seventh grade girlfriend style thing going. In uh, not because of the drumming, but it was like I felt more comfortable comfortable socially and stuff. Yeah. And it was like like yeah, we're in a band, <laughs> even though we had that whack tape. Right, right. Yeah, you know, the previous year it was like, we kind of got our shit together now, but we never really wrote any songs. Mm. We got together and we wrote lyrics and we would watch "Kiss videos because the other two guys were like super- huge kiss fans. But uh, yeah, I guess where I'm going with this is the music and the girlfriend's thing, like still to this day, never popped never off. never popped off, never came together. If anything, uh, it's like, "Oh, you're a drummer." Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like it's not a thing. It's it's a kind of a lie that's perpetuated by old guys that want to make fun of you. To take it back. Yeah, sorry. Like, yeah. No, no. I'm
0: good for going off on the tangent, by the way. I love it. Which you fucking know. So after this initial band, which sort of got kind of tighter, like <laughs>
2: it got like, a little bit tighter, and yeah. we added a, we added a guitar player mm. just to throw this in, Steve Shalalis. Let's go. Who could play? Who could play a bit? And he had a black guitar. The other guy had a, had actually had the other guy in the band had the same guitar that Weird Paul plays. Oh, wow. the BC Rich, um, like I guess it's like a maroon metallic maroon kind mm. of Warlock, right? Oh, okay. Because I think that's I think um, Paul Stanley had a Warlock or, something, mm. or had a BC, but Steve Shalala's had this just kind of it looked more like a Fender Strat and was black, and he could actually play. And Jamie could sort of play by this point, but Steve like was playing a little weirder stuff, and we thought, oh, now we have a band, and then I moved to Arizona. So, yeah. that, so that, that was when that fell apart. Did but the you, next phase. Did you start a band out there? I did, but it like, right. took me a year. Mm. I, it took me like all of ninth grade, where I kind of like... All I did was, was like, go to comic book stores. I had just started doing that. Jared was really into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I started going with him and kind of going like, Oh, what's going on with Batman? Who I hadn't paid attention to. And I started going to comic book stores. <laughs> And really, only reading Batman, but that was like the weekly trip. It was like, let's go see what's new at the comic book store, and looking at like weird books, getting like, like like optic nerve and kind of mm. underground shit, and then drumming, and I drummed pretty much every day for a couple hours, and I got to hand it to my parents, because they bought me that used drum kit in fifth grade. I don't know if they knew they were going to keep hearing it for ten years. Yeah, but like they, I was just like, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go practice and they were just like okay and it was it was they never told me to stop pra- maybe a couple of times to tell me to stop practicing yeah. but like usually it was pretty you know might have been a couple of times like, dad's like i have a, I have a horrible headache can you stop that <laughs> but like but most of the time it was like i could go play for two or three hours yeah and and they were cool with it and um that's what i did all of ninth grade yeah and i was trying i was playing a little bit to jazz stuff and i was just playing to all kinds of different stuff but then tenth grade, I met these kids who were all a year younger than me, and they were all into New Wave. Mm-hmm. I heard one of them talking about po- uh, police in a science class. I was like, "You don't want the police?" And he looked like offended, like that I was talking to him. Like, <laughs> so what? <laughs> and I, I went to talking to them, and we started a band, and we basically started playing New Wave covers, which was way past. This is like eighty nine, mm. way past when you were supposed to be playing New Wave covers. Yeah. It's like ten years late for that. Yeah. But we all like talking heads and police and stuff so we started a band called access which i think jared named i think jared gave us the name of access oh, wow. and i initially was like access no access yeah we're gonna call it no access and jared's like you're gonna call it the opposite of what i said <laughs> and i was like yeah but no access is cool that's more like a stuart copeland thing <laughs> it's just stuart copeland and the his clark kent Alter ego and thing Were very important to me Because <laughs> he was a drummer And then it's like Oh he's got a record Where he's playing instruments That's crazy mm. But um So we were all Into the police And all this like Total like nerd rock And shit that we Shouldn't have been Listening to Because it was 10 years late. And then we started Writing our own songs That were kind of like Tongue in cheek Dorky yeah. Kind of like Dorky new wave Punk stuff mm. But our guitar player Like wouldn't buy A distortion pedal So we bought one For him And his parents Wouldn't buy him an amp He this he was a total like geek dude, yeah. really smart dudes, did well in school and could kind of play guitar. But we all, the three other ones of us in the band bought him a, chipped in and bought him a distortion pedal. And we were just dialing it in for him. He had no interest in figuring out how to play it. We were <laughs> like, we need to play some heavy stuff, like here, play this. So we started writing stuff and playing some gigs and we, we actually played a couple of club gigs. Mm-hmm. I met Buzz Aldrin because we played at the opening of a little space exhibit. <laughs> and we fucking played walking on the moon mm. and he's like i like your band and we we're like you know we're playing a police song that's 15 years old yeah <laughs> it's like i was on the moon <laughs> and we're like you're old it was so it was and it was Scottsdale was a weird place i don't phoenix wasn't really happening i didn't know about the meat puppets i didn't know about like some of these like phoenix bands that yeah. were happening um but like it was <laughs> So it was a weird scene. It wasn't like there were a whole lot of places to play. Yeah. We played one, we played a show at the Mason Jar, which was a kind of a storied place. Mm. I think Black Flag had played there and all kinds of stuff. And we were really excited about that. There was a horrible sound issue at that show. And I screamed at our friend Brad, who was doing sound. I think he was just turning the volume up and down. But like, he and the club owner were behind the board. And I screamed for them to like, like fix the fucking feedback or something. And Brad looked like he's. Just got the shit scared out of him. Mm. And Jared, all our parents were at this show. It was like, it was not a club crowd. It was like all our parents. And the other band we played with, who I think was called Dead Dead Animal Pickup, who Mm. were much more of like a punk punk band. They were like friends with the other guys in my my band. Um, They were the other band that was playing. So it was just all of our parents and brothers and sisters and this jerk ass owner of the club, The Mason Jar. And then Brad was doing sound next to him. And I was really yelling at the sound at the guy who on the club because like he should know what he's doing, and our friend Brad got like oh shit, <laughs> and I like, apologized to him. they were like sorry, this is our first club game. We were like real nervous, you know. <laughs> and we thought like now we've played a club like the world is our oyster, yeah. And then it's like there's not really any other clubs that you could play there. I mean, there there might have been house shows going on, but I wasn't plugged into the like hardcore yeah. DIY scene then. It'd been underway maybe for a few years, but I just. We were a bunch of like nerds, yeah, trying to play music from like before we were born, <laughs> stuff. Right, right. kind of aggressive new wave stuff, and like nobody was having it. And uh, and even the songs we wrote were like in that nature, that in that style, and it was like kind of dorky and I don't know. Then uh, if something happened. Our guitar player, I think, I think the singer who had known the guitar player since like kindergarten. I think he fired him from the band, and it was just like, "Well, who the hell is going to play guitar?" With? Like nobody likes this. Like who the hell's going to play guitar with now? And that kind of fizzled out. And uh, then I got a whole go band in college, and then I just kept writing with my friend Neil, who was in that band, and write um, that he wrote this whole like sort of album of material, this like prog rock stuff, and we didn't really know what to do with it. This is the early '90s. We played it for my uncle. We were like, "What would you do with this?" And he was like, "Oh, I, you know, I'd send that to uh, Matador." you know (laughs) and I'm just like I don't know if it's from Attador but anyway so it was Neil's material Neil made the decision finally like he didn't like the recording it was all just four track stuff yeah he didn't like the recording so we sat on it yeah and it's like and then that turns into other things and that turned into the band I know I've told you this before the band where we moved to Boston to be in the band and we and then we found a place in Boston Jesse didn't Ultimately want to move out of his parents house at that time yeah. for any number of reasons and Mike and I moved into Boston. We were there about three months until we ran out of money mm. Mike decided he was gonna go to law school <laughs> Like this isn't where it's at. I need money in my life, which is a very practical decision And I said I'm gonna go I couldn't find a job in Boston. I had an internship at Boston magazine But I was like I can't find a job here even at these restaurants and stuff I'm going to yeah. I couldn't get a job so I came back to Pittsburgh for one weekend and was like sulking around and then going like, you know what, I'm gonna look for a job here, just see what I can find. And I got three jobs in one weekend. Mm. I've got three agreements to like, well, can you start next month? And i like, yeah, I can start next month. So I went back and told Mike, like who I knew was gonna go to law school. I was like, this apartment's a disaster. <laughs> the band's kind of, you know, we, I think we were just got freaked out by the fact that the one third of, one thir- third of us was like, yeah, I'm not gonna do this. Yeah, and it was just like let's not get into a, me- a really messy situation here with like Owing money to this guy for months for rent right. well, for jobs and things it was like I'm gonna go back to Pittsburgh where I got three jobs and then just stay at my folks out for a while and accrue money and re- start doing more stuff on the four-track myself Which is what I did and that's why I started yeah. messing around that's when I did the first the Vox Robotica project yeah, and that's still around. But I—that's that's what I started doing more, and started getting more comfortable recording my own stuff at that point.
0: Well, what did you make of it? Like, you know, you've been in this '90s Boston scene and kind of freaked out, and then you're back in this Pittsburgh. Like, what did you make of this
2: the, the, scene like, music where you scene found here? yourself? Yeah. Well, I mean, the the thing in Boston was like very. We didn't really know where to go in Boston. Yeah. I remember, I remember Mike and I went one time to uh, <laughs> uh, Mama Kin, the Aerosmith Club. Oh, wow. Because we were just like kind of looking around, like, where are the clubs? Like we're, We didn't really know. I mean, I had yeah. a couple friends there from when I grew up, but um, they weren't in the music scene aside from Jesse. And Jesse wasn't indoctrinated into, like, oh, yeah, we're the independent clubs that we can go book shows right, and right. stuff. We were kind of the whole Nirvana awareness of, like, oh, everything is a sham, <laughs> We all were aware of that, but we didn't... There was no real network then to be like... Other than just going to punk shows and things, which we... I think that's what we would have eventually done in Boston, just wound up going to smaller shows and meeting people. Um, It was like, okay, well, let's just go to some clubs. And one of them was Mama Ken, and we're like, what's this like? And it was a giant club. It was like, we're not going to play here. Right, right. We didn't really know how to go about these things. You know, we were stupid kids in our... You know, we were twenty, twenty-one, 21, and uh, I guess 21 or 22 if we were going to these, these bars in Boston. Uh, but it, it, there wasn't a, we didn't ha- We didn't experience a scene there. Mm. Having gone to school at UMass Amherst, kind of in the, the, as the whole Nirvana explosion thing was going on, and dinosaurs there, and Sebados from there, and buffalo toms from there, and all these amazing bands... There was definitely a scene in Amherst, so yeah. I knew that from college. And I think I was kind of expecting that in Boston. But it was like Boston was too big or something. Yeah. And there's always amazing bands happening in Boston and coming out of Boston, especially then. But, like, we didn't know how to plug into it. And we, did, right. we weren't there long enough to, to, to try to plug into it, I don't think. Um, but then Pittsburgh... I don't even know how this happened because Jared was here doing Grand Buffet by that point he, right. they were doing shows in when they were in high school and things so yeah They were doing that stuff and I came back and I kind of was just like oh Where are you guys going to do these shows because I didn't know anybody here. I still hadn't really lived here. Yeah, and um, So I was essentially coming from Massachusetts to Pittsburgh with no reference points or no people I didn't know people from high school. I didn't know who to call. Yeah So I was kind of going to some of the some of my little brother's shows first at high school He was doing them at high school And then they started playing clubs and stuff, maybe their senior year in high school, and Mm. then right after. And so I kind of saw some more of these smaller places, and was like, oh, this is where it's happening here. Like, this is the accessible thing where you can yourself call and talk to the club owner. And then it was, like, not long after that that we met Manny also. And it's like, oh, this is Manny Tyner. He's been doing shows here since he was 15. Yeah. (laughs) I think we met him in about ninety seven or maybe ninety eight, um, and then it was like that was like the connection. He's the he's Manny's the nexus point in Pittsburgh, yeah, for all things independent music, right? Right. So it's like as soon as we met him, we met a a pretty cantankerous man, Manny, at a house show, Mm. and it's like, oh man, these guys are doing these small ass house shows. A show he set up. I think it was a show he set up. It was um. It was at a show in, um, I, want, I think it was Edgewood or Swissvale, kind of out near Regent Square. I think that that's right. My sense of geography, for anyone who's listening, doesn't know me, is uh, uh, offensive and abhorrent. Mm. So, <laughs> it was, I think it was the Edgewood Swiss, Swissvale exit off of um, whatever the hell the route is out here, and it was a little. It was like suburban development kind of and yeah. then oh there's a show in the basement of this one house yeah and I think one of the guys that owned a house when it's in a band here called Paul in 451 oh okay and he introduced me and Jared and Jackson to Manny at that show and then I want I think Jared and Jack just kept in touch with Manny and maybe got him demos or something
1: yeah
2: or the, uh, the, the first GB album might have been um been out at that point um I keep thinking of their tape names. It's not making him and junk. Uh, Scrooge, Scrooge McRock. McBrock. They may have given him a copy of Scrooge McRock or something, and he might have seen like, oh, these guys, these kids can do some shows or something. Yeah. So I kind of hung around some of those shows, and then it was just like, oh, okay, this is, this is like doable here. Like you can call up, book a show, go play a show. Yeah. And then I got a band together here. I just put up some flyers and met this dude Ron, who was uh, it was I put Buffalo Tom or something on our um, on the flyer, put a bunch of bands I liked. And thought someone's gonna like one I mean it's also and I think now it's obnoxious I put like 50 bands on the flyer with mm. my number and I think two dudes called me and one of them was Ron and he just loved Buffalo Tom I'm like let's play and we we're both drummers so we started this band we wound up calling the fizzies and it was like two drummers mm. wanting to play guitar and or bass mm. and then we went through a series of drummers and uh who we were always really angry at because they never played the way we wanted them to play Mm. uh and then we wound up doing some recording and we played a bunch of shows and sometimes braun and i would play with grand buffet yeah when they were doing um they played a lot of different shows and they it was hard for them to play too and a lot of a lot of places in the mid to well the late 90s wouldn't book dudes who were playing with a dad, right which was the thing that was what they were doing right um like you have a dat? What are you, a karaoke band or something? Did it, yeah. Nobody. It didn't seem to make sense around here. So some of these shows, uh, right? Uh, Ron and I would play. Ron would play bass and I would drum, and Jared would play guitar. Um, Jackson would mostly mostly just sing, and sometimes play Jaminator, play mm. the Jaminator, which is always good. And uh, Jared's an excellent bass player, and so we just like. Could kind of and Ron was a you know decent bass player and Jared's also a very good guitar player so we could kind of just if they wanted to do a show that was like a rock bill yeah with other with other band indie indie rock bands or punk bands or whatever and Jared and Jack wanted to do a show with that at that place or on that bill or something they would ask us and we'd be like yeah sure because we you know playing with them then that developed briefly into a little offshoot band called Wesley Sniper right which was I think there were some Wesley Sniper gigs where we played a couple of Grand Buffet songs, but it was mostly these sort of um, sort of shit-eating, grin kind of punk, crashy kind of songs that Jared and Jack would write, mm. and Ron and I would back them up on that as well. And we, <laughs> they, run a, they won a rock challenge. There was a Rock and Roll Reporter. The Rock and Roll Reporter was a magazine around here that, was, that is often uh, s- like snarkily derided by people, as being like lunkhead metal shit, mm. but the truth is, and, and Cislon and I always talk about this, they were pretty even-handed and wrote about everything. Yeah, but Rock and Roll Reporter had these contests, so you could go and play these contests, and for a night, they would get whittled down and stuff. So um, I believe it was Wesley Sniper won one of these rock and roll challenges. And got some recording time and went to a recording studio. So, somewhere there's, there's a recording on ADAT, an ADAT transferred recording uh, of the Wesley Sniper album, which is, I think, five or six songs long. Yeah. Which I haven't heard since we recorded it, but uh, I'm sure Jared's got it in a vault somewhere. Yeah. But uh, so that was that. I met a lot of people that way doing, you know, meeting, seeing Manny Moore and yeah. meeting other bands doing that stuff. So, now I was like, okay, feeling a little more comfortable doing this. Booking shows and talking to people and going to shows and talking to people at shows. Yeah, and not feeling like a creep Yeah, because I always have that I always had that like well if someone wants to talk to me They'll talk to me like I don't want to be the jerk going up to them right right, <laughs> but then I you know I was like, oh no, you have to go You have to go talk to these people yeah about shows and stuff uh, especially because they're more socially inept than I am <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so some, <not, laughs> some of the times it's like the reason they're not talking to me isn't because they don't like the way I look or something. They're shy. Right. right. <laughs> and it's so like they're... it's okay to be shy and it's okay to go up and talk to someone and break that shyness barrier. Yeah. So, anyway, so that was happening, you know, the mid to late 90s here and I was getting more comfortable booking shows and things. So, but that's that. It was much easier to find out what was going on in Pittsburgh to go around to a handful of places that were doing any shows
1: than in Boston where it was oh, kind of yeah. like
2: just like. And not that Boston's even the biggest city, but it's like, music-wise, it just wasn't clear back then in the mid '90s. Like, where what the hell's happening? You moved to New York for like years, right? Mm-hmm. Like, when when was that?
0: Uh, relationship started mm. in
2: um, 2002 mm. with this this girl who was finishing medical school and was starting her residency. Um, in in, in on Long Island, and I wasn't sure. I wasn't. It wasn't like oh, like we had just started this relationship, and I was like, well, I guess, I guess moving to New York would be okay. Like New York, like I'm thinking, like Manhattan, Long Island. Like, what's the difference, really? Right. And our Jared's and my uncle had lived in Long in Manhattan for years since the late '70s, so we'd been there a few times. You know we. Not like we knew our way around, really, but like I was interested. Like, yeah. oh, you know, in my early twenties, like let's let's go to New York. What the hell? But <laughs> Long Island and New York are very different <laughs> culturally oh, yeah. and in terms of what's going on. And I, I mean, I had basically had to go into the city anytime I was trying to do anything. Yeah, I got very very used to doing that. But it's I wound up putting up flyers again for trying trying to find musicians and things, and it was just that place was just a glut of. In the early 2000s there was 2002 was when I first moved there um, with this girl and then she finished medical school in 2006 and we moved up to we moved back up to Massachusetts um, where her family was from and it, things went to shit after that mm. but <laughs> but that was the period it was 2002 to 2006 and uh, yeah it was a weird that was a- Period, <laughs> because again, I was doing more uh, music stuff just in the little apartment. Yeah, we had it. St- we had this tiny studio apartment that was sort of like housing on. I was going to say on the base on the on the um, the property of the hospital where she was working. Mm. So it was very convenient for her, and she was the only person that I think in the residency program um, that didn't get into a car wreck like a bad car accident at some point because they would work for hours straight and then get off their shifts and then driving home they would start falling asleep and always drive into something. But she just had to walk up and down the hill. Yeah. So that was convenient on that level. But it was also sort of like like we were ready to kill each other Mm -hmm. because it was like we were just always around each other in this studio apartment with her two cats. And it was just like there was nowhere to go. (laughs) Uh so that my experience on Long Island was like this little cloistered (laughs) fucking apartment. And then we would go out to a diner every now and then, and she never had any time to do anything socially. Right. So she was frustrated about that, and it was just like this other – I didn't – this was not the experience I thought of when we went to New York, and she remember she was telling me, like, like I'm going to work, like, a lot of hours. And I thought, well, what's a lot of hours? And I didn't know a lot of hours meant, like, 110 hours a week. Right. right. And it's like, oh, you mean a lot of hours. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to see you, really. And so that was a weird thing and I was like try I was st- I was writing at the time professionally I was kind of doing some writing. Yeah. And I was still doing some writing for some Pittsburgh magazine. I was like, sort of telecommuting for a first year or two. Yeah. Writing for some city paper in Pittsburgh magazine a little bit here. And then it was just like I can't I'm living I was like I'm living in New York now I can't keep just writing Pittsburgh places. Person I was who was my managing editor at Pittsburgh magazine got fired which was I was kind of waiting to maybe get back to Pittsburgh here at some point for a full-time job. Yeah. writing job at Pittsburgh Magazine to to get it to get a paycheck. And then they fired the person who was my biggest advocate at that paper mm. at the magazine and she was devastated cuz she thought she was going to be there for like 15 20 more years. Mm. And then I was just like oh now nobody there wants to hire me now because this was the person I developed this writing relationship. Yeah. With. Anyway, so I started trying to look for places to write New York and it was just there's just so many people in New York And this is when everybody had started moving to Brooklyn Right, right And an electro clash was happening and like New York even more New York's always the place to be But New York was even becoming more the place to be and everybody was going to Park Slope and the whole thing was like mind-numbing it there was so much shit going on it was like I would kind of answer some of these these uh, classifieds for musicians but like most of them were these ads and, and it doesn't and it doesn't matter what kind of publication it was like Village Voice or The few online things that I was checking then most of them were like um,
3: Pro look like there were so many ads that were
2: like pro look a must hmm and like I didn't even, like, I couldn't, I was like, where are these people coming from? Like, yeah. are these all people that think they're going to have a million dollar video budget in six months? Right, right. And they might have been. I don't know what yeah. like, delusion, I don't know under what number of delusions people move to New York. Yeah. Or where they get off all these, these schmoes that, like, move there either to Brooklyn or Manhattan or fucking Park Slope or Queens or wherever the place is now there's I'm sure there's some uh, tremendous uh, gentrification happening and people are skyrocketing the rents up to a million dollars a month I don't know where they get off they come they move there, and then they're just like you have to have this hair that looks a certain way right right and like you know electro clash look and all this stuff like must be able to play but I, I was just like blown away by this stuff and then I started like well I'm just gonna get I'm just gonna rent a practice space because in Pittsburgh, I had a practice space with a friend of mine who I would collaborate with and do the Vox Robotica kind of organic y electronic project with. His stage name was Spencer Lux, so we called it Lux Robotica. Mm. We did some shows like that. And um, we had, even when I was in Long Island for maybe a year, we, had, we kept the practice space in Pittsburgh because it was super cheap. And then I started looking at practice spaces. In Long in uh, Long Island in Manhattan, and Long Island you couldn't you had to go to like a storage facility or something. Manhattan it was like absurd, and that was this was the same thing I found in Boston. Rehearsal spaces were like a hundred dollars an hour. Yeah, totally. And I'm like, like that's what the rent was for a month in Pittsburgh
3: for a practice space. And I'm like, fuck this.
2: Like, totally. the, like, how, like, how do you do this here? It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. If, you have, if you're in New York and you have no money, which I was. <laughs> I had no right. money. I was barely employed, and then I was not employed. And the girl I was living there with was employed, but I never saw her. <laughs> and, it, and she wasn't making a shitload of money. She was finishing a residency, and there just wasn't money to do this stuff. And it was like, I don't know how people survive. I was, like, yeah. barely... You know, I would go grocery shopping there, and then it's like, well, that's the money. Right. And, and so I kept doing more stuff at the apartment and, and doing four-tracking and stuff and doing some Vox Robotica little recordings and stuff then. But it was also two, that four years was not a super productive musical period for me. I was, mm. like, trying to figure out some life shit and balance that with doing some stuff. And it was yeah. just like... I spent more time sort of looking for jobs then. Than I did doing music and that was right, aggravating. Right. And it's like, well, I'm not enough finding these jobs that are going to be uh financially tenable. Yeah. So I might as well just I might at the while I'm doing this, I might as well just get more into the music shit. Right, right, right. And then we moved up to Massachusetts and that fell apart and I got a job and I got a job while I was still in Massachusetts uh after we broke up. I stuck around for a couple weeks and got a job and stayed in Massachusetts basically. Mm. And uh that was when we were recording with the garage. I got, got a laptop and started using GarageBand yeah. and stuff. And did some... I think I might have even given you a couple beats back then of these early things that I did right to GarageBand and mixed out. And I'm sure they sounded thin. But uh, that was the first thing that I started doing. They were hooking up the drum machines.
0: Was that when you and Greg really started to...
2: I don't want to go too far off on this one, but Greg's band that he was playing with the two-piece... Uh, he was playing with then kind of stopped playing out and he was like you want to play a little bit and I was like yeah let's look let's play and we just set up a a four track and recorded some shit um just based on some vague conversations we had about stuff we wanted to do and he mostly drummed and I mostly played bass Mm. and we start we didn't have a name for that really and then we we decided to call it South Sea Snake having something to do with a Chinese restaurant menu Yeah And a drink that was in there The description of which was South Seas Sneak That was the drink It was like I don't even remember, I can't remember what the actual drink was called Oh but the, the, So the, the drink was some name Yeah It was like a saucy sailor or something I can't remember And then you have the, the little ellipsis And then they would have the description of what was in the drink Yeah And the place <laughs> of where in place of a description featuring actual things that are in the drink it just said south seas sneak <laughs> and greg was like we need to call a project that yeah. and that became that name so it's kind of a insane name but it was like perfect at the time and then so, and eventually greg and i have we get these different ideas to do these things and then these other bands develop these other projects develop mm. and other people Couple times people have seen me and Greg playing in South Sea Snake together, and they're like, "We need to play together." And yeah. So, and sometimes those people are drunk, and they're just like, "I need to sing for you," and <laughs> right. we never see those people again. Right. And we don't expect to. Right. But then sometimes it's people that we have sort of just met, like our friend Davon. He's like, "I, I'm not. I've never been in a band. We need to be in a band together." Mm. And he comes through, and it's like, then, then is formed. Yeah. And That's that band. Andrew just said, hey, you guys want to jam? And it's like, sure. And Andrew's like a really good guitar player yeah. and has really nutso ideas and in a really productive way. And it's like, yeah, let's, let's start this other band. So then that band, basically me on bass, Greg on drums, and Andrew on guitar, becomes OC Fief. Yeah. So now we have South Sea Sneak, which is kind of the bass band. Thin Sketch, which was kind of, I feel like that was kind of the second one to happen. Around 2009, mm. or something. And some later in 2009, I think, was when we started OC Fief. So these are kind of the functional things now. Yeah. Um, and then Greg and I, Thin Sketch was supposed to do a show about a year ago. And Dave on who sings and plays keyboards, couldn't do the show. And it was last minute. He told us he couldn't do the show. So Greg and I were like, well, let's just do South Sea Sneak. But there was all this construction up on Penn Avenue. And we were like, well, we don't really want to deal with all this construction and moving amps and bases. Let's just use a bunch of electronic stuff. And Greg's mm-hmm. like, Yeah, like let's like we should do something like like the Lux Robotica stuff, the Vox Robotica stuff. Like mm-hmm. we'll just do li- live electronic man- manipulation stuff. And I'm like Bet. So it's like we both kind of winged these <laughs> really hinky electronic setups and that became at first that was just South Sea sneak, and then it's like, well, let's call it something else because it's different, and A that's AAR. Yeah, so that's the most recent thing, which we just played tonight. But uh, that's how these things develop, and then it's like they all have their own sort of like little trajectories. Yeah. and it's, it's, they're great, and at the same time, it's really tough to get some, I, a, a concrete sense of
3: how to pursue all of them or even really like one of them
2: in a, in a very productive way. Yeah. Um, or, or, or a, or a, um, profitable way. Right. <laughs> I think right. it's the key. But, uh, I think the first thing is you have to release something. Yeah. And then, and then have, have this, you have to get over your neuroses about it and release it. And that's what we're always battling. Mm. But, uh, but we're, we're less precious. I think about the other stuff than with the South Sea sneak. That's this whole first release. We've, talked ourselves into uh like the arm stuff we have a band camp there's just no files up on it yet but i have no compunction about making all that stuff digital right uh yeah. and putting it up there and if people want to have at it and oc thief andrew is, is much more of a tech guy than we are and he masters all the stuff we record and puts it all up and we have about a dozen albums up on Bandcamp. Really? really? That's crazy. Yeah, no, like, Yeah, like, nobody knows that. <laughs> but, um, and so, you know, it's funny, because, like, Andrew knows how to kind of shift stuff around. Like, we were talking with Benk before about...
0: Yeah.
2: ...that knew hey guy who... Oh, oh, yeah, we were on the first page of Bandcamp, Right, so right, right. Andrew kind of knows how to do this with kind of search words and stuff, because yeah. it's his, his job. He works with search stuff, and knows, knows a lot of things about how to get the... Uh, Placement kind of stuff. Yeah, it's like he's all he's able to do that stuff and we're like, that's terrific So it's not like it's it's not like we're Get on the front page of Bandcamp right right. hundreds and hundreds of downloads, but it some people in like Nepal and shit have like you know uh, or fucking Italy Greece Have like downloaded our stuff and sent us like messages and it's like that's crazy. Yeah, as much as I hate the internet for the beast that it's become and the beast that everyone's become relying upon, it's like some motherfucker in Italy downloaded all of our records and yeah. it's like really feeling. Yeah. It. So there's some merit to that. That's really something that's kind of amazing. Yeah. But, and that's the, and OC Fief doesn't play out a lot because Andrew has this beautiful little family and he needs to spend time with them and wants to spend time with them. So we kind of, we, we board. And that's sort of its little, its little life, is we record with Andrew, most of it is improvised spontaneous composition stuff and then he mixes it and we all kind of sequence it together and then these become the albums. Yeah. So that's kind of a great little process that has a, you know, like a beginning a middle and an end yeah. kind of and we do play shows sometimes but it's not that often and we probably won't be touring that much with it. But Greg and I are still trying to, we've done some touring stuff and um, we keep, we always talk about doing more of it. And so it's, so it's the money is always the bottom line. She mm. it's like, you need to rent a, neither of us have super reliable cars. Yeah. And it's like, you also don't want to beat the shit out of your car. So maybe you have to rent a car and do this stuff and all these like little
3: things that uh, yeah. become in your mind,
2: uh, exponentially debilitating, <laughs> well, yeah, like insurmountable. Yeah, they so, become these sort of insurmountable odds, and it's like, well, sometimes people just go into credit card debt for five hundred dollars and oh, do the yeah. whole tour, and that's what happens.
0: Yeah. So,
2: time you know, it's it's just getting over the hump of butting that bullet and doing it. Yeah, yeah. So as right now, it's like South Sea Sneak, Fox Robotica, AARM AA are the kind of central things, and OC Fief. Yeah. As a sort of recording project, occasional life. Yeah. But, yeah.
0: Well, if you were to take one thing
2: and run with it, what do you think it would be? I mean, I'm, I think the South Sea Sneak since it's the kind of the core thing. Yeah. And it's the thing that
3: we have the most control over the two of us.
2: I don't know. In a way, it's maybe the least accessible thing that we do. Nah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, you know, I, the Thin Sketch stuff seems to me seems to me to be the most access- accessible because it's kind of like kind of like punk songs kind of yeah. keyboardy punk songs um, but th- that's what i see that Greg and i have made this choice to make this kind of odd bass and drums and occasionally guitar music that has a it, there are, i think it has an audience but it's a pretty in my view it's a kind of a much smaller audience that 20 years ago
3: we could have kind of carved a little touring circuit and maybe eked out a little bit of a living on and that seems like a much bigger insurmountable situation mm. now too given the climate of everything and like it
2: seemed that like about 20 years ago it would have been it was possible for some bands who had the intrepidity to go out Like, if you had the balls to go out and just stick to it, stick to touring, booking your own shows, releasing your own records and stuff, or maybe releasing them on a small label with some distribution. If you had the balls to stick with that for a few years, you kind of maybe could make a career for yourself out of that. Because other people were going to fall by the wayside because they were like, well, this is... I don't like not... Having a family, or I don't these big life choices, like or I don't like foregoing a big paycheck, or I don't like these things. You kind of, and there's nothing wrong with wanting those things, right? But it was, I feel like bands in at large kind of were reliant upon those things coming in and whacking out the people. Um, that weren't maybe as serious about right, doing that as right. the people that wanted to stick with it. So that to me was more the climate really 15 but really 20 years ago before the internet flood that everybody in America is apparently in two bands.
0: Right. Right.
2: And that just like seemed to just not level the playing field. It blew the playing field to pieces. Right. Right. So it's and I'm not begrudging I mean I guess I am begrudging it a little bit. But it seems like there's no... I feel like we were maybe talking about that a little bit yesterday. Yeah. There's no um, system of checks and balances now. Right. On, the, on an independent level. Or at least I don't see it that way. It's like... It's kind of just crap. <laughs> right. It's kind of crabs in a barrel. Yeah. And it's just... What, it's like catches catch can and you throw some shit on the wall and it sticks or doesn't... And occasionally someone will get be- behind I mean, I think when I started playing music in high school and even in college, it's like, oh well we're gonna play something and someone if someone comes out and likes it, they're they're gonna recommend it. You know, someone from a record label is gonna be at a show. That's the like romantic notion right. of this. Someone from a record label is gonna be at a show. <clears throat> and I mean I was even thinking this in Scottsdale. Oh yeah, my father owns a record label. Let's uh let's put you guys out let's you a single right because that's what you always kind of read about maybe happening
0: right right, you know to
2: 20 bands in New York over the course of 20 years yeah but and it's like that's not how shit happens but it used to kind of maybe happen that way yeah that will not happen now very very rarely right especially given the percentage I mean just the sheer not the percentage the sheer number of bands that there are now yeah it's like everybody with a computer can put out a record. Yeah. In the ether of Bandcamp or... Zonflatt right, right, or right. Whatever. So... So then what's important? What, what's worth listening to? Right. And, and how do you make those determinations?
0: It, yeah, and, and like... It's fucked up that it's like... You can make it all the way to the dude in Italy, but every idiot can also make it to the dude in Italy.
2: Italy especially like. this idiot <laughs> it's no it's it, yeah it's like it's really something it's like on a again it's like on a level that's really tremendous but on another level I would kind of, nothing against the dude in Italy yeah but I would kind of like forego that dude in Italy liking us to ha- to be able to travel a touring circuit and get fifty people out of each show, right, right, right. where the, we where we could make the mo- the gas money and yeah. come back with enough money for rent, which again is a romantic notion I have about something that was going on twenty years ago, um, and it's frightening to me that I'm saying twenty years ago, like it's, and everybody always says like, oh, you're, you got of college and time starts flying like that, and. It didn't really hit me until I was 25, and it really, it it really does. Yeah, it's like you're a kid in school, and it's like, man, I'm in school for uh, all day, and I got to do this till I'm 18. Oh my god! But then college, college went by like that. I don't learn, didn't learn anything except how to string a guitar, and and then I'm just like, man, I think you, I hit 25 or 26, and it's just like. It's the same. It's like, it was. did something happen last year or was it 10 years ago? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's freaky to me that I'm saying, look, 20 years ago This sounds so antique, you know. Yeah. It's such an old man thing to say. <laughs> but like, things are so... I remember... There was the internet in 95, but I remember I was going in magazines and zines and I had friends who were doing cassette trading and stuff like that. Yeah. And... People whose whole. I have a really good friend, Missy Kulik, who's this amazing artist, and we were in. We were. I don't. I didn't mean to gloss over this band. We were in a little band called, um, um, the Getaway Bugs. And she was su- super into zine culture, and is like a monster in the zine community, and just does these amazing comics and things. And I, you know, I met her in like the late nineties at, at Borders when we were working at Borders. But um. She was super into all this stuff, and I didn't know the extent to which, even in the late 90s, this cassette trading was happening in singles clubs and things, and it was really invigorating. And then in a few years, it was, like, all shot to shit by the Internet. Yeah. eBay comes along, and it's just like, oh, you can just get anything that exists. (laughs) Right, right, right. Like, I still have, I just, I have this now in my other room. I have, you know, some of these records that I have. And I don't have, like, a record collect Like, some people have, like, thousands and thousands of LPs. Yeah. My goal was never to, like, collect a thousand LPs. When I started buying records as a kid, it was, like, to buy records I loved. Yeah. And I might like 10,000 records, but I don't love them, so I don't need to own them. Right, right. So, like, I tried to buy records that I really, you know, loved. Or said There was something about them. So I have a few boxes of LPs. I have a bunch of CDs and tapes now. Also, but like I have that sort of one core collection that I started when I was 11 and that I was buying LPs until 89 or 90 regularly, So I have that core collection and I was always sort of like real psyched on that collection like I got the uh, Def Jam single by Jazzy J Do you have that? Yeah, I bet you you know like any anybody else that would have any interest in hip-hop do you have that? I bet you fucking don't. Because I looked for years to find that, yeah. and I found it, and I did my work, and I found it, and now I have it, and I got it when I was twelve. What about you, motherfucker? <laughs> this is the coolest fucking song ever. This jam, or not this jam, Def Jam by Jazzy J. Yeah. And it's like one of the earliest Def Jam singles, I think. It might have been the I first think Def the Jam single. First, yeah. yeah. And I I want to say the flip has that Russell Simmons track where he's talking. I can't think what that's called, but um, I think that's the flip side. Anyway, so I have this whole cache of like these LPs that I looked like and singles that I worked because that was the other hip hop thing. There were not hip hop LPs really until about 1984 or five. They were all singles, so I have all these cool singles. And then in 2000, 99, 2000, 2001, it kind of becomes completely meaningless. Yeah. Because these things that were so close to my heart, like, <clears throat> just anybody could get them. Right. You could go on this computer, which 20 years ago was a fucking like dream. Like, oh, I would love to have a computer that I could get anything from <laughs> right. or communicate around the world. And now right. it's a reality and it fucking sucks. Yeah, Because these things that had meaning before Not that they don't have meaning They can have meaning to you But people who weren't around 10 years ago Or 15 or 20 years ago These new people These new humans They don't give a shit about that It's like Oh did you get that record because you were really into rap Before anybody gave a fuck about rap On like a large scale And you went looking for them I don't care Right. Like it, was like it was like Manny was saying earlier about that. Um, what's the fucking. Uh, li- is it Lacona Pop or Icona Pop? Ionopop. pop. Yeah. It's like, I love it. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of the thing that I think the internet has brought with it. Like, oh. I love these things, but I don't care about them because there's no investment in them. I have no investment in these things yeah. that I love. And there are people who make the choice to. Offer this stuff for free. And we OC Fief does that. I'm not like to- totally against that. Yeah. But I'm partially not totally against it because that's the climate now. Right. And if we made everybody, if OC Fief made everybody, all 50 people that wanted to download their music, if we said you have to pay $5 for this record, how many people would download it and listen to it? Probably half of them or less. Right. And uh, that we'd only have $14 in our bank account
3: instead of the 60 that we have.
2: But it, I don't know. It's a trade off. It's like, do you want people to listen to your music? Then you're gonna offer it as a free, offer the free download as an option. Yeah. And if people are really feeling magnanimous, they'll give you a dollar for yeah. five records, or they'll give you ten dollars for. Five. And that's just kind of how it is. I would actually prefer it to have less albums up and have them being pressed or have them go to vinyl. Right. Or have them go to a CD and to have it be like, oh, it's sort of more of a laser focus kind of, this is a release. This is a thing that's happening. But it's not like what's going on now. And, um, you know, some of us, like Greg and me with the South Sea Sneak, we're kind of holdouts for that. We're going to make that yeah. happen that way. Well, I don't know.
0: I think there's something that, that used to exist where if you wanted to self-release an album, mm-hmm you had to tour or do something or just play a lot of shows or try to get some bigger shows. Yeah. And it w- would go on over a period of time. You know, like, like it's like, okay, we got this new record and once we do that, we're going to go on tour and this and that. For a few months. Yeah. Or maybe a year. Part of the thing I miss about that is that people had to, like, defend their...
2: And like stand by their release that's exactly it yeah you had to stand by your work yeah and what you've chosen to commit yourself to yeah yeah that's exactly it
0: I think I see a lot of really young bands kind of lose focus because of that That they've only known the band camp Mm -hmm. world they 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 work on something the big reveal is just the one day that they put it on Bandcamp and make like the Facebook announcement Mm. and then it's ultimately like that's it so it's like okay do try something else yeah
2: and that can come with like probably a few different sort of follow up reactions to it like like, well nobody gives a shit we try something else kind of like what you're saying or like well, nobody gives a shit, but that's okay. Right. Because we got this other thing that we're going to put right, up Right, right, right. Yeah. It's like, it's bo- <laughs> both, it sort of can be a defeatist thing, follow up, or it can be just an optimistic, like, well, that's okay. Yeah. Here's another one. <laughs> yeah. You know, in the next week or even a month later, yeah. it's like, here's a
3: whole new
0: record.
2: <laughs> that sounded like Mickey Mouse.
3: Here's a whole new record.
0: <laughs> we might want to shut it down. Just cause we might want to shut this it down. goddamn
1: son is gone. Something's coming up peeping.
0: Thanks again to Jordan
3: for doing this interview. See you next week.